I'd like to begin my sermon uh, today. I was really wrestling last night on, on my introduction for today's message, and my wife and I were having a conversation, and she, she didn't know this, but brought up my, my grandparents, and I thought, man, that is the perfect introduction. So I want to start by telling you a little bit about my grandparents. Um, and and the, the grandparents I have in mind are Donald and Vera Miller. Now, Donald and Vera Miller are both with the Lord now. They were born in the 1920s. Uh, my grandfather was born in Indiana, my grandmother in Modesto, California, where, where I hail from. Uh, my grandparents were part of that, that generation that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, right? That generation that um, survived the Great Depression, that generation that um, was, went through the World War II, right? That, that won victory in World War II, that generation that, that saw this incredible technological advancement and innovation. And all the while, if you, if you knew those from that generation, um, did it with humility and, and honor. Um, however, you know, my grandparents, they were simple. My grandpa and grandma loved Jesus. My grandpa was probably the hardest working man that I ever uh, was around or knew. Um, they moved 35 times at least, maybe 37, where we've lost count um, during their marriage. So their life was, was one of... of um, not stability, I would say. They experienced a, a multitude of afflictions and, and trials in their life, uh, whether it was the loss of a home to a fire, kind of appropriate given uh, the context that we've had over the last several weeks, whether it was the financial difficulties as they, they went from place to place looking after work, whether it was the stress of raising uh, four children in the midst of all of those change. Uh, their lives were really full of difficulty. But however, the, the one thing that I remember most about my grandparents is more than anything else was their perseverance, their persistence, their, their patient endurance, even in the midst of great difficulty. Uh, they had that, that word, I don't know if it is a word, but I'm going to make it up, that stick with itness, right? That stick with itness that was a part of that generation. And it's something that seems to be kind of lost today in our, in our culture, now, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at our society today, we're, we've basically become a, a society that is built on sound bite-sized communication, right? And everything is, is very, very short. Most, of, most people in our culture can't sit through a 30-minute lecture, let alone a 45 to 50-minute sermon. You guys are going to prove the exception today. Thank you. Um, you look statistically at our society, and it's pretty amazing. Do you guys know that the average tenure of a job, your typical job, is 4.6 years? The average American marriage lasts 13 years. I was actually surprised of that. 13 years. And more than almost 50% of marriages end in divorce. Uh, A sadder uh, statistic I found is there was one study that was done looking at the average length of stay for a pastor in a church. It's just about four years. Now, the fact is, generally speaking, if you look at our culture Uh, The attributes of endurance and perseverance and persistence are lacking from our culture at large. And I would say even in the church sometimes, this is something that we lack. So I want to pose the following question for you today. And and it's, it's this question. Does it have to be this way? I mean, how do we ensure that we can persevere, that we can endure, that we can run the race that's set before us, that, that Christian race before us? How can, how can we follow the example of dear saints like my grandpa and grandma who belonged to Christ and who pursued him with a, a simple, steadfast devotion that left an example for their grandchildren, uh, such as I, and for the watching world? The morning 
this morning, we want to answer that question by looking at a portion of Scripture written by someone who really understood what it meant to persevere. Let me give you a few uh, facts about this individual. This individual spent three decades in ministry. They traveled 10,000 miles or more on journeys across the ancient world. Now, the ancient world, uh, these journeys were nothing like we experience today, right? With our our leather upholstery, our air-conditioned automobiles, right? Our jet planes. No, this is a guy that spent his time on journeys by foot or by animal or by boat. This is one that traveled the dusty and dangerous roads day after day, week after week, and, and can you imagine the dangers that existed on those journeys? But there's more. He experienced not just the dangers of those journeys, the rivers and the robbers that might be there. Uh, we learn in, in the scriptures that he experienced labor and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst. He often went without food or was exposed to the elements, the weather. He was beaten with rods at least three times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was flogged with 39 lashes five times. He was attacked by angry mobs. He experienced death threats probably beyond measure. He was shipwrecked at least four times and was left afloat in the open ocean. He dealt with false imprisonments, was chained to Roman soldiers for 24-hour periods of time, and he was even bitten by a poisonous viper. Now, beyond the external things, this same individual dealt regularly with these daily pressures of concern for these churches that he had planted and ministered in. Uh, And we see it through, through the scriptures that he wrote, that he labored and prayed faithfully. He burdened, felt the weight of responsibility for so many. Now, I'm assuming now if you've spent any time in God's word, you know who I'm talking about. Ultimately, this individual is the Apostle Paul, and what we know of the Apostle Paul is that he endured all of this and likely much more that has been preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. Tradition teaches us that uh, Paul was, um, his life was brought to an end. He was martyred uh, by being beheaded in Rome by the Emperor Nero somewhere in the middle to late 60s. But before his death, Paul penned these two things. And think about these. 2 Timothy 2.3, he said this to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Endure hardships with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Endure hardships with us. And then just a few chapters later in 2 Timothy 4.7, he wrote these amazing words. I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. How and why? Could Paul say such a profound thing? How did Paul have the ability to persevere in the face of such difficulty and trial, far beyond what any of us in this room have experienced now, and I hope, Lord willing, we won't have to experience in the future? If you've ever struggled to endure this affliction or affliction such as it, if you think that life has beaten you up to such a degree that you cannot persevere, well, guess what? This morning, we need to listen to what God's Word tells us and what Paul has to say about this perseverance. So if you would take your Bibles with me, turn to Romans chapter 5. I want to read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and then I want to pray for us and we'll dive into our text. And we're going to persevere even through uh, this, this morning with an air conditioner that's not working as well as it should, right? So hang in there with, if I wipe my brow, please understand I'm, I need perseverance. Romans chapter five, verses one through five. God's word says as follows, 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Lord, we come before you this morning, God, as beggars before your word. We pray that you might give us illumination, that by your spirit we might understand your word, that we might, Lord, take it into our hearts and our minds, and that it might transform us by that same spirit, that we might become, Lord, more like our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name, for his sake we pray. Amen. Now, before jumping into our text, I want to just give a quick disclaimer about this sermon. Um, I want to I note that, that this text, verses 1 to 11, the main point that Paul makes in this, this particular section of Scripture is he's looking at or focusing on the benefits of justification. He's talking about, as Pastor John says, he's talking about our security or our assurance that we have because of what Christ has accomplished in justification. But what I want to do today is I want to focus on that, that little word in verse 3. And that little chain that Paul sets up, that word that we see there as perseverance. I want to focus on what it means to patiently endure, because we all need it. How do we patiently endure in a life that's going to have affliction and trials and difficulties? Um, I, I don't need to take a survey, but I'm assuming if I look across the room that all of you have experienced some. You're probably in the midst of them now, and you've got some to come. Afflictions will face each of us. And so I think our text today does a great job of laying out for us some, some, some really great evidence from scriptures of how we can endure. And so what I want to show you today is three aspects of perseverance from our text for the believer that should motivate us to persevere like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So three aspects of perseverance. The first one, look with me at verse 1. The foundation that prepares our perseverance, the foundation that prepares our perseverance, our justification. Verse 1, Paul writes, therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, we have to understand this is a big word, right? Justification is not something I can just read and skip over, right? And if, if, if we had the time, I would love to spend it going all the way back through chapters 1 through 4, reading it, spending a lot of time digging into what this means. But quickly, I just want to give us some context, so if you turn back into chapter 1, just highlight a couple elements for you. To, to understand this foundation right, of justification, this foundation that helps us to prepare to persevere, we have to understand what Paul means. Now, we know, if you remember, if you recall from Romans, that Paul spends the first four chapters of Romans laying out the gospel case to this church at Rome, a church he'd never been to, he'd never visited. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, we read this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, This theme of righteousness expanded by Paul throughout the rest of Romans. And after his initial greeting, we know what follows in Romans 1, 18, Paul then notes really the the depravity of man, doesn't he? Romans 1, 18 through 32, a passage we know 
uh, all too well. He, he articulates clearly that man is ungodly. He articulates that man is unrighteous and that man is at the same time without excuse. And why is that? That's because man knows God. Right? God has clearly revealed himself through what has been made, and so man is without excuse. Uh, he says in that passage that instead of worshiping God, the God that he knows, man instead worships creation, the created instead of the creator. He says that man exchanges the truth about God for a lie. He suppresses the truths that he knows about God in unrighteousness. So Paul, ultimately, that first point is, is to show this practical wickedness that God gives man over in their sin to fulfill all deeds of wickedness. And we're seeing that even in our, our world around us today. In chapters 2 and 3, he continues and he goes further. He says that both Jew and Gentile are without excuse. They're guilty before a holy God. He says in, in chapter 3 specifically, right, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside and we like sheep have gone astray. He says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul's indictment of man in chapters 1 through 3 is full and final. The depravity of man is total, and he sets up the need for a Savior, right? The need for a Savior, and the need for a righteousness that, that's, that we don't have. The need for a justification that we can't earn. Then in the middle of chapter 3, Paul, Paul gives us, he goes from the bad news to the good news, doesn't he? The middle of chapter 3, he says this. He says that apart from the law, there is a righteousness of God that has been manifested to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Yes, Paul says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but God has this gift, this gift of justification, gift of God's grace that comes through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so our justification here that Paul speaks of is that act of God by which we are declared righteous, where we're pardoned from the guilt and penalty of sin and where we're given Christ's righteousness by imputation. We must note, as it says so clearly, that this is not a result of our own efforts or our own works, right? This is by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Paul continues in chapter 4, and he gives us an example of this justification, doesn't he? He talks about the patriarch Abraham, and he, he notes one particularly, he quotes back to Genesis fifteen six and says this, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Right? The justification that Abraham received was in the same manner that we receive it. It was by faith and not by works. So in four chapters, Paul has clearly laid out an argument that there is a great need of justification. And at the same time, he's articulated what the, the means of that justification is. Only and ever by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we come to chapter 5 and verse 1, and Paul's continuing his argument and he says, therefore, with all that in mind, having been justified by faith, we have. Did you catch those words? We have. And what I want to note here in this foundation, first of all, is that that justification, that once for all finished act by God in which the sinner is acquitted comes with some benefits. And I want to note three of them that we see here in verse 1. Okay, these three blessings of justification that are foundation stones, right? Imagine we're building a foundation. These are those stones foundational to the Christian walk that we might persevere. First of all, notice what he says in verse 1. 
we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer enemies with God, right? It's important to note that here God is, uh, is not saying, Paul's not writing about this peace of God that we read of in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, right? The peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace, that internal contentment that we feel. No, rather what he's talking about here is the fact is that we were at war with God. And because of justification by faith, we're now at peace with him. We've been reconciled with God. We're no longer opposed to him. And there's a passage I want to turn to to help with this. Turn, if you would, ahead a bit to Ephesians chapter 2. And there's a, a passage where we see this expressed a little bit more clearly by Paul. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul has already articulated a, a very similar statement to what we had in Romans 1 through 4. Um, Paul talks about the fact at the beginning of the chapter that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were once by nature children of wrath, that we were at one time separated from Christ and were without hope, that we were formerly far off, we were alienated from God. And then in verse 4 he says, but God, and he recounts that great work of salvation that we know so well, right? We were saved by grace through faith and that it was not of our works, lest any of us should boast. In that amazing sovereign work of God, each human soul has been brought from the domain of darkness, right? Each believer who puts their hope in Christ has been brought from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God and his light. But look at verse 14. Paul writes this. He says, for he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Notice what Paul says here. Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, the second member of the Trinity, he's the one who brought peace by his shed blood. And that peace was not first and foremost. Now, in this text, he's talking as well about the peace that comes between the Greek and the Jew, the Gentile and the Jew. This mystery of the church, that there would be a peace that would come where where the Jews that saw the Gentiles as nothing but dogs right, would, would be folded together into the household of God. But if you caught that in verse 16, what did he say? Might reconcile them both in one body to who? To God. See, the reality is the issue that's at the heart of, of the matter here and what we're talking about, Paul's talking about first as a foundational stone of perseverance, is that our justification does something that we have to have. It makes peace with God. And, and, and I know we know that. And I know you've heard that, but we have to make sure that we don't just skip over that. It's vital that we understand. In fact, Romans 1.18 told us, right, that in our fallen state, we were under what? The wrath of God. We were under the wrath of God, but we're no longer under that wrath. Romans 5.9, if you turn back to our passage and just flip a page ahead, Romans 5.9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul's point is clear here. Jesus bore the Father's wrath in our place. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, another text that you know well, right? Says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so it's important to, to note first and foremost that it's the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice of the suffering servant by which we gain peace with God. Remember that. And that should motivate us, shouldn't it? The fact that at the very beginning, God is, has made a way that we may know him, that we may be in relationship and communion with him. But there's more. Look back to our text. It says this, verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, the Greek word here that's translated as introduction, it's interesting, the NASB went that way. Most translations actually translate it as access. And I, I actually believe that's what Paul's getting at here. It's not that we're, we're learning about God for the first time, right? No, in fact, what it is is that we've been granted access or a right to enter, a freedom to enter, right, before this great God. I think what Paul is saying is that by God's mercy, we've been brought, right, from the outside to the inside. We've gained access because of justification through Jesus Christ to God. Uh, The passage that we were just at a minute ago, Ephesians 2, if we read two more verses, 18 to 19, says this, for through him, Jesus, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. We were once far away and now we have access to God. Imagine this. Now, we see this throughout Scripture, don't we? If you think back to Genesis with me, Adam and Eve were created in the garden to have communion with God. We learn early in chapters 1 and 2, right, before the fall, that they had access to God. They walked with God in the garden. There was a communion with God. We fast forward to the time of Moses, and we find that the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, they had access to God. Right? If you remember the, the, the lightning and the thunder and, and the noises that came from the mountain as God descended upon it. We learn there that God gave them the tabernacle, didn't he? And he gave them a, a, a very clear place where they could have access to God. But there's something that happened from Genesis and transferred throughout the rest of the Old Testament, isn't there? The glory of God, which started with Adam and Eve, is something face-to-face, or at least in the presence of God, without need of a barrier or a priest. But then for the Israelites, what did we have? It was in the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go one time, one time per year to go and meet with God. As you follow through, even into the book of Ezekiel, you reach that point, right? That sad day when the glory of God lifted up from the temple and left. And for that time period from the fall of Adam and Eve until the moment when Christ was put on that cross, when Christ finished the work of justification once for all, there was not access to God in the way that we have it now. Now, Christ's victory has provided for us access to God. The dividing wall is gone. The dividing wall is gone. The veil that that stood between in the temple that, that kept God away from man, that kept man away from God, it's been torn in two, hasn't it? Christ has done that work. I love what it says in Hebrews, if you want to flip there with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I love what is written here. The author of Hebrews writes, 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I mean, can't you see it? How important it is that we can come with confidence and boldness because of the finished work of Christ. We have access with God. And, and this access to God is most expressly seen in the way that we can come to him in prayer, isn't it? Hebrews 4, 6, another text speaks about the reality, instructs us in this, that Christ has made a way that we can come before the throne of grace, can't we? We can come before the throne of grace with great confidence. And, and I think there's three things that are really clear when we think about our access to God. One, it's direct. No longer, Hebrews tells us, that no longer do we have to go through a priest. We don't need someone to stand up that we have to go through and, and ask for absolution. There's not someone that we have to confess our sins to and then, and then he's that median between God and man because we know there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We have direct access to God through our Savior. Also, it's, our access to God is intimate. In Matthew chapter 6, I love when Jesus teaches us how to pray. And what's he say? How's he start? Our Father who art in heaven. The access to God is intimate. We can come directly to him. In the the deepest turmoil, we can come directly to him. And thirdly, it's effective, right? There's not a a ceiling above our prayers that they hit and bounce back. They make it into his very throne room. The, The scriptures teach us that our prayers are a fragrant offering before our God. They ascend to the throne room and he hears us and he responds. Let me ask you this. Do you daily take advantage of this access? A last foundation of perseverance is back in our text. We read that we have hope in God. What's it say? And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have peace with God, not only do we have access to God, but we have hope in God. And we're not like the mass of humanity that that Paul talked about in in chapter 1. Those who have foolish hearts, whose minds have been darkened, whose foolish speculations give them no hope. And I don't know about you, if you ever have any opportunity to talk with those in the world, and you should, if you start to talk to them about where their hope lies, it's sad. Their hope lies in anything and everything, but the one thing that can give them true hope, and that's God. They find their hope in their work. They find their hope in their families. They find their hope in, in their, their beauty. They find their hope in their, you know, their agelessness. There's hope in all kinds of things, except for the one thing that matters. But we're not like them. As believers, we have hope, right? We have a hope. And what's it say specifically in the text? We exult in the hope of the glory of God. What Paul's talking about here is our future glorification. It's the reality that there is a day coming when there will be No more sorrow, no more struggles, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more selfishness, no more sin. And we have to understand that this is not the kind of hope that that we have, you know, in our culture. Unfortunately, the word hope has been been captured by our culture, and it's been used to mean nothing more than just a, a wish, right? Like I say, I hope that my wife makes steak for lunch today. No, Okay. 
or I, I hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope that the 49ers win the Super Bowl, which is looking good right now. Now, that's that wish, the wishful thinking that we use hope so much in our culture. And we even as believers fall into that and use hope in that same kind of manner, don't we? That's not what's meant here. I love what, what's said in Hebrews 6.19, where hope is called an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's Christian hope. The hope that we have, the hope that we have is that our glorification is secure, right? If you turn ahead with me just a couple pages to Romans 8, verse 29 to 30, Paul writes there, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The confident assurance of our glorification is clear here. And you can't see it in the English as well, but in the, in the Greek, Every single verb there is in the same form. It's in the aorist. It's a past tense. God is speaking. Paul's writing about, right, through the Holy Spirit, this assurance that we have that that glorification at the end of verse 30, it's just as sure as the calling and the foreknowledge of God and the predestination that happened before the foundations of the world. Your, your glorification, your justification, your sanctification, those are things that are assured because of the work of God in your life. And that's what Paul's getting at here. This is the hope that he's talking about. The Apostle John in 1 John, we won't turn there, but 1 John 3, he writes this, and I think this is really helpful in articulating that hope. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So just as our peace with God through Jesus, just as we realize that only by Christ we can have the hope of future glory. It's his victory. It's his victory over sin and death that gives us this hope. And so we see that the foundation piece that prepares our perseverance is those things. Peace with God, access to God, and hope in God. But there's a second aspect. Turn back to verse 3. Secondly, we see the force that produces our perseverance. And that's our suffering. The force that produces our perseverance. Look what it says. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Now, this is probably a bit unexpected, right? We've talked about rejoicing and hope and access and all. Those are all good things, right? It's easy to, to, to exult in peace with God. It's easy to exult in hope in God. It's easy to exult in access to God. But to exult, to rejoice, the word actually means to boast in our tribulations. Uh, many times, I know I've read this at times, and I'm sure others of you as well, you read verse 2 and you say, got it. Those things make sense. I know that I have peace with God. I know that I have access to God, that I have hope of a future. But life is hard right now. I'm suffering. I lost my job last week or my marriage is not going so well. My kids just don't obey. I have a disease that came out of nowhere and, and the illness in my body is racking me. Maybe people mock you or persecute you because of your Christian testimony. And it goes on and on and on. But we have to realize here something important. And it's pretty simple when you think about it. It takes tribulation to produce perseverance. 
the dictionary, Merriam-Webster, defines perseverance in this way. The quality that allows someone to continue trying to do something even though it's difficult. Or continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition. It, we know that word, right? And I don't know about you guys. I grew up, uh, I played football in high school. I know it doesn't look like it. Um, but one of the things that we had to do was, was lift weights. And any of, any of you that have ever spent much time in the weight room uh, understand this, this concept. When you sit down under a bar and you, you put more weights on, if you're, a, if you're a man, you put more weights on than you should, and you get under a bar and, and you start to push against that, there is resistance. That's why they call it resistance training, right? The weight, the bar, it resists you. It resists whatever desired motion you want to send it in. So it takes perseverance to lift weights, right? Most of us, we get under the weight the stress, the tribulation of our lives. And as soon as we feel the pressure, we say, that's one rep. That's good. All right, God, I'm done. That was a really good workout. I remember going to the gym and there would be those guys that would come in and, you know, they'd walk around and flex their muscles and, and look at, I don't know, they still do that. I haven't been to the gym in years, but <laughs> as you can tell, um, but you watch those guys, they go in and they, man, they get in, pump out two reps and then slam the weight down and make a lot of noise and walk out. And I'm like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> but true gains, true gains are made through perseverance, right? There's no perseverance necessary to lay on the couch all day, right? There's no perseverance necessary for us to eat a great meal. There's no perseverance required to, to handle the easy things in life. It's the difficult things. And so Paul here, he, he knows that. He chooses a word as well that's interesting. The word that he talks about here for tribulations, it's a common word. It can mean distress or affliction, oppression, anguish, trouble, suffering. It's, it's very generic. Now, I do agree. I think with uh, many commentators actually believe that this generic use of the term here reminds us that he's not talking about a particular tribulation or a specific trial, but he's talking about all of the different number and ways and manifestations of affliction that we might face. I mean, simply put, we know that suffering is a part of our lives, don't we? We can't escape it. We know Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, that in this world you have tribulation. Our suffering can include a variety of things, but we can know that it will come. Now, the question is, how do we stand up under it? Because that's the second point. We can choose how we respond to tribulation. We know it's coming, but how are we going to respond? And I think there's really only two choices. There's two choices. It's the same as, as the analogy, the illustration of the weight room. Choice number one is to respond in bitterness, anger, fear, despair. We can doubt God and his goodness. We can just plain give up. There's no perseverance necessary to respond in that manner. And I, I, I convicted in my own life that there have been times where that's exactly how I've responded to the afflictions God has brought. The second choice is to respond in joyful confidence and exult in the promises that God has given to us. To continue to fight the good fight, to run the race with endurance. Right? This is when perseverance really does its work. It's when it kicks in. And so Paul says that we rejoice, we boast in our tribulation, not because it's enjoyable, but because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. Now, we had the chance yesterday um, to go out to the beach. And every time I go to the beach, and we were at Zuma, every time I go to the beach, I think of Rich's story. I'm not going to bring it up again, but of him getting slammed at the beach. But 
we were at the beach, and because I'm in the water, I'm always thinking like it's going to happen to me. <clears throat> so we're at the beach yesterday, and, and it's funny because my kids, my son is really into surfing right now, and, and I really would like to think that I can surf, but I can't. Uh, we're out in the water, and, and you know when you're in the water, you are just, you're in the waves, and the waves feel huge, right? We're out there, and my, my son came in at one point and said, Dad, I just rode a wave, and it was 10 feet tall. And I said, I, I really doubt it was 10 feet tall, but, but right when you're in it, it, it seems so massive, right? The waves are so large, they feel so big because you're in them. You're feeling the, the motion of the waves, the roll of the waves, the effect of the waves. But if you're on the shore watching, you're going like, really? That was like a two-foot wave, you know, or a one-foot wave, right? The perspective's different. And I think I was thinking about this, that oftentimes that's what we feel like in our lives, right? Life brings the waves, the pressure, the affliction. And what happens is when you're in the midst of it, you think that you're getting hit by 10-foot waves because you're filling every roll and you're filling every single breaker as it comes over you. You're tossed about. You don't get your bearings. Your perspective is very clearly under the wave. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think that's a, a part that we can come out of this is what's he say? He says this. What about it? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Even when you're in the midst of the wave, it's thinking back to the truths of God's word and knowing that God is with you and knowing that he is even using this trial to, to, to develop in you perseverance. Right? It's being able to, to take ourselves away from the waves and step back to the beach and to look out and say, okay, yes, they're, they're hard right now. They're difficult, but I know that God is doing something in me and using them for my good. That's when perseverance does its work, when we can get the right perspective about the work that's being done in us. And ultimately, what's so great about that is that is where we come to maturity, isn't it? That's where the Christian life really matures. And the example I was thinking about as I was going through this was just thinking about the reality that those people that I know that have maturity in faith, right, the people that I've, that I've met here at Grace Community Church and spent time with that I just go, man, how are they so wise and so mature and so spiritually minded? And you know what? I know without, without a doubt in many of their lives, it's because they've had affliction after affliction and trial after trial, and they have made the choice to persevere, to bear up under it, to continue to fight to continue to run the race. And so I think what a great truth for us to think about and say, you know, the Lord has given us these means to do this, to persevere under trial. And how do we do that? We open his word. We spend time reading and studying and memorizing the scripture, meditating upon it. We, we have the opportunity of access to him. So we de- devote ourselves to prayer. We spend time in fellowship as you're doing now with one another. God uses all of these things to to build us up, to strengthen us. And just like that weight room analogy, over time, what happens? We get stronger and the resistance isn't quite as hard and we're able to bear up under it. So we see from the text that there's clearly a foundation that prepares perseverance. There's a force that produces perseverance. Lastly, look back to the text, verses four and five, the fruit that proceeds from our perseverance. And and this I want to look at is our spiritual growth. He says, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
two, two fruits of perseverance I want to look at. The first one is unshakable character. Notice what he said, and perseverance, proven character. The word here in the text for proven character carries the sense of that quality of a person who has been proved and succeeded. Right? Uh, turn with me quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to show you a text that speaks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says this. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The proof of our faith is the testing that comes through trials. And when we come out the other side, glistening as gold, all of the dross removed, right? That, that work of sanctification that one day will be, will be made complete and perfect glorification. The proof of our faith, that proven character is what Paul talks about here. And that proven character is what gives us that growing maturity, right? That ability to continue to resist even in the midst of fiery trials, it's the same thing we, we think of in James uh, chapter 1, just a few pages back from 1 Peter. You know that text well. James says in chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God designed the Christian life to be such that it is through suffering and trial and difficulty that we are made more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that should not surprise us, should it? Because even our Savior, when he came, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. The life of Christ was full of affliction and trial and suffering. He had to persevere, and he did it perfectly, didn't he? He never once went against the will of his father. He always resisted or bore up under the affliction and persevered. He set an example, a perfect example for us to follow after. The unshakable character that we develop as we persevere is a blessing from God that results in further and further perseverance and growing character to the point that one day we will die and we will be in his presence and we will be made like the perfect one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's something else. Turn back to verse 5. We see one more unwavering hope and proven character. Hope and hope does not disappoint. Paul returns here to the theme of hope. He, uh, I, I think in, in a large measure, hope is one of the major themes of this section. And he says here that hope does not disappoint. The, the expression here affirms that those who hope in God shall not be ashamed. I, I was uh, led to Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, where Isaiah writes, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Paul quotes Isaiah 28 later in Romans chapter 9 and 10, and he talks about that as the assurance that we have for all those who believe upon Christ, 
that we will not be disappointed. What Paul does here is he speaks of this reality that our hope is a hope that grows as we persevere. I don't know about you, but the hope that I have in God today is not the hope that I had in God when I was first saved 20 years ago. It was an immature hope, wasn't it? It was a hope that, that needed maturity and perseverance and trial and all of those things to build it up into the hope it is today. And Lord willing, I, I pray that my hope today is not what my hope will be in another 40 years. So Paul's expanding on this hope. He's telling us that hope is like a muscle, right? It's like a muscle. Uh, when I was in third grade, I broke my leg uh, playing football and I had to have a cast to my thigh. And I was in that cast for, I think, six to eight weeks. I was in a wheelchair. It was great fun letting people push me around campus. And my mom was terrified. She thought I was going to break something else. But I remember when they removed the cast, it was one of the most awful sights in my life. That, that leg <laughs> was shriveled up and, and didn't smell good and just was, it was awful. It had atrophied, hadn't it? Because I couldn't use it. It was in a big cast, right? That's, that's, in many ways, that's what perseverance is like, right? If we don't use it, that's what hope is like. If we don't use it, if we don't continue to grow it, if we don't continue to, to, to work against and press on and persevere, it can atrophy, so God is so gracious and kind to bring in trials so that our hope doesn't. That we might not rest upon ourselves, but rest instead on him. And so what we find is that hope doesn't disappoint us, does it? Now notice one more thing in here that I don't want to miss. What's he say? He says that hope doesn't disappoint, disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Because his love was poured out in our hearts. Sometimes I think one concern that I have at times in our attempt to try to go against or resist those that teach the love of God at the, at the extent that, that nothing else matters. They teach the love of God and not the wrath of God. They teach the love of God and talk about God being a God of love, but that's all they ever do. In, in our attempt to try to make sure that we stand up against false teaching such as that, that we can forget how immeasurable is the love of God. That's where our hope is found. In fact, the rest of this, this section in chapter 5 is a recounting of that. A love of God that was so great. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us. In what way? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The, the love of God is something we should constantly reflect on. The love of God is something that we should constantly be encouraged by. It should strengthen our hope to consider that God took us who are worthy of nothing but his wrath. I spent the last month uh, studying and preparing for our Bible study, teaching through hell. And teaching through hell will do two things to you. One, it will convict you of the reality that, that in many times I'm a practical atheist. Because if I understood the significance of the wrath to come and the hell to be experienced by all those who are lost and outside of Christ, I would, as Charles Spurgeon said, I would be on my hands and knees grabbing the legs of those on their way to hell, pleading with them not to go. But it does something else. Teaching on hell gives us a, a fresh appreciation of the love of God. That God 
didn't just send us all where we deserve, but that he gave us peace with him and access with him. That we have the opportunity to come to him and to love him in return. That we have a hope and a future with him. Be encouraged. God promises to provide exactly what you need for the challenges of your life. Every single one of us in this room have exactly what we need in Christ to persevere, to endure. Remember these three things that I gave you. Remember that our justification is the foundation of our perseverance. If you're a believer, you have peace with God, you have access to God, you have hope in God. Read the word, study the word, spend time in prayer, be here to fellowship with with other believers, build one another up. Remember that our suffering is the force that produces perseverance. Respond rightly to tribulation, stand up under it, trust in God, and know that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And remember that our perseverance will bear fruit, that fruit of an unshakable character and an unwavering hope that will lead us through this life to the point where God calls us home. Now, I want to end by reading something to you. This is a poem that my grandmother, Vera Miller, wrote. And it was uh, in her memoirs, and I was looking through it last night, and I think it's an appropriate way to end. And um, to speak, the, the poem was called, The Strength Was God's. No strength of mine would face the test, no cheerful courage brave the blast. My heart a cringing coward fled and found a sheltered nook at last. I can't go on, it's just too hard. Each blow I thought would be the end, but lying still before my Lord, I felt that only he could send. At first his peace and then his love, then courage lent her silken wings and gently, sweetly from above a hint of future better things. And once again, sweet healing came as heaven's fountains bubbled up with waters cool and crystal clear to fill my empty waiting cup. The fear was mine, the weakness too. The strength was God's that saw me through. Let's pray. Father, we come before you overwhelmed with your great love for us. Lord, we confess that, Father, we are so quick to give in. We are so quick, Lord, not to persevere and to resist and to endure even in the midst of the difficulties of our lives, Father. We are quick to forget all of the promises of your word. Father, we pray that you might, even through this message today and through the glorious truths of your word and the glorious hope that we have in God, Lord, you would give us hope, give us strength that we might persevere this day and every day until you call us home to be with you, that we might persevere. We might seek after you and endure, Lord, that we might be more like Christ and that you might use us for your purposes. For his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.